0: Welcome to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers with New York Times best-selling authors Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. In this episode, you'll be taken behind the scenes of Casey and Dave's national true crime bestseller, Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. And now, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. Dave, tell the
1: listeners why we decided to write this book.
2: There's been a lot of great reporting on the case throughout the years, but there were also many unanswered questions and a great deal of holes in the story that needed to be addressed so that the full story could finally be told. It was time for a fresh look, and we decided to take a deep dive into the case to finish off this 50-year crime saga once and for all. just two days before Christmas, in the
1: winter of 1994, as the city of Boston was in full sparkle for the holidays, James Whitey Bulger knew there was a storm brewing. Forecasters were predicting a massive nor'easter for New England. But more important to Bulger's survival, he learned of a slew of impending indictments churning out of the US Attorney's Office that would send Whitey and his gang of ruthless killers to prison for life. At that moment, Whitey ended his girlfriend Teresa Stanley's holiday shopping spree and together both vanished in Bulger's blue Ford LTD. Teresa, Bulger's common-law wife, had traveled with the mobster before, but not like this. They had recently visited London together where Whitey accessed a safety deposit box and stuffed it with $50,000 in cash. The trip was made even more eventful after Whitey beat up a man in a subway car after the guy called him a bloody yank. But this trip was different. They were traveling as would-be fugitives. Although the indictments took some time, Whitey wasn't going to stick around Boston to find out what happened. Whitey and Teresa drove down to New York and then to New Orleans. When Teresa complained, Whitey smacked her around forcing her to hide in the hotel bathroom. After two weeks, Teresa got homesick for her kids and her grandkids back in Boston, and Bulger got sick of all the complaining. He drove her back to the city, dropped her off at a Chili's restaurant nearby, and picked up his longtime mistress, a beautiful Southie dental hygienist named Catherine Gregg. Now, Dave, you interviewed Catherine's twin sister for this book, Describe her background and why she was willing to give up her relatively comfortable life for a life on the run.
2: Catherine Gregg was a daughter of South Boston. She grew up on the streets where Whitey and his crew and the gangsters before them unleashed a bloody war in Boston's underworld that sent 57 men to the morgue. Whitey emerged from that legendary bloodshed, narrowly dodging death and hiding out for a period, and was put in charge of the notorious Winter Hill Gang. Catherine watched Whitey in his tight t-shirts and his slick back hair as he lorded over the neighborhood, handing out cash to kids and old ladies, serving Thanksgiving turkeys to the poor and running the rackets. When she was just 20, Catherine married a firefighter named Bobby McGonigal. Whitey would go on to kill two of his brothers. He notoriously joked about one of the brothers, Patrick, whose body he buried in the Dorchester Bay, telling friends, drink up Polly whenever the tide would come in. Despite all the bloodshed in her family, Catherine remained smitten with Whitey. She divorced Billy after a few years and became Whitey's mistress. She was loyal and respected the code of silence and was the perfect partner for Whitey.
1: Whitey and Catherine drove back to New York City when they were on the run, where Bulger believed he could hide out in plain sight. He then swapped cars in Long Island and continued south to Louisiana. Whitey had been planning his escape for decades. His life on the run conjured up romantic stories of his two favorite outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde. Now, while researching Hunting Whitey, we got access to more than 70 letters written by Bulger himself. One of those letters was written on the back of a photo of those two infamous criminals. Two of my favorite outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde, Whitey wrote, died together, shot down from ambush by Frank Hamer, Texas Ranger. Tombstone for Clyde Red, Gone, but not forgotten.
2: Whitey was gone from Boston, but certainly not forgotten. He had destroyed the reputation of the FBI for enabling his crimes, misdeeds, and murders. Corrupt FBI agent John Connolly was now behind bars, along with members of Bulger's gang, including Stephen the Rifleman Flemmi and notorious hitman John Moderano. No one in the public and the media believed that the feds were interested in bringing Whitey in from the cold, putting him on trial for his crimes, and revealing the closely held secrets of the FBI once and for all but two FBI agents found themselves hot on Whitey's trail, John Gamble and Charlie Gianterco. Gianturco traced one of Bulger's getaway cars to an address in Selden, New York. In the dead of night, he took the vehicle, a grand Marquis, to the Nassau County Police Department and began disassembling it piece by piece. Investigators removed the tires and they took soil samples. They ripped apart cushions and pulled up rugs. That's when they found a crumbled up piece of paper. It was a receipt for several items purchased at a Walmart in Galliano, Louisiana. Gian Turco said, "Bingo." Casey, what were Whiting and Catherine doing in Louisiana? Well, they were living actually
1: in a small coastal town called Grand Isle, and living under the names Tom and Helen Baxter. While there, they befriended Penny and Glenn Gatro along with their kids. Uncle Tom and Aunt Helen, as they were called, showered the family with items from the local Walmart while Penny provided them with homemade meals. I interviewed their son, Bruiser, for this book. They bonded with the fugitive couple over their mutual love of animals. When Whitey heard the family's dog was pregnant, he paid for the vet bill. When one of the puppies got sick, we begin to see Bulger's sociopathic personality revealed. Bruiser Gautreaux had to put the little dog down, and that was too much to bear for Whitey. When Bruiser got his shotgun, Bulger told him, Do what you gotta do, but don't shoot her until after I walk away. I can't bear to see it. After walking about a hundred yards, Whitey heard the gunshot. He didn't look back. Instead, he put
2: his face in his hands, and he wept. FBI agent Charlie Gianturco found his way to Galliano, Louisiana. It was a totally different world from what he was used to in Boston. This place is funky, he told his partner. It didn't seem like the kind of place a guy like Whitey would land. As he drove around Galliano, something didn't feel right. This doesn't make sense, Gianturco said at the time. There are no beaches here. It's a pretty desperate place. Whitey wasn't there, he thought. The FBI agent got back into his car and drove another 52 minutes south to Grand Isle. This beachfront bayou town, located on the Gulf of Mexico, was a perfect hiding spot for Bulger. But Whitey was already long gone. He'd been tipped off by his former girlfriend, Teresa Stanley, that the FBI had discovered their aliases, Tom and Helen Baxter. But they didn't leave right away. Whitey and Catherine
1: had to say goodbye to the Gatros first. Bruce Gautreaux was already in bed when the couple knocked on their door. We gotta go. There's been a family emergency, Whitey told them. You probably won't see me again, at least not in person. You may hear about me or read about me. Whitey and Catherine hugged each family member and left the home in tears. They traveled to Chicago to get new fake IDs and then boarded a train west to California. They arrived in Los Angeles and booked a small motel where Whitey would plot out his next move. He considered heading north to Washington, but the weather there was too damp for his aging bones. The same with San Francisco, a place close to Bulger's heart because of the three years he spent at Alcatraz. During one of their first nights in L.A., Whitey was awakened by the sound of helicopter rotors hovering over the motel. Bulger tensed up. He rushed over to the window for a peek outside. Then he flicked on the television to see what all the commotion was about. Turns out the helicopter was a TV news chopper following a convoy of vehicles to nearby Santa Monica, where opening statements were about to begin in the O.J. Simpson civil trial.
2: Hey, Casey. Like our fans who tune in here on St. Sinners and Serial Killers, we're all about truth. Working on our projects, I need a boost sometimes. I love my coffee, but I'm really loving these true lifestyle drinks. Me too, Dave. There are
1: six different flavors for every activity. They're gluten and GMO-free, organic, vegan, and there's no artificial sweeteners or additives. They're clean, and they contain all sorts of vitamins and nutrients, and they're damn tasty. You know,
2: True's founder Jack McNamara is a former pro hockey player, and he created True because he was looking for healthy energy drinks that wouldn't make you crash. I've been loving Energy, the Orange Mango Wake Up Blend, as well as Focus, the Apple Kiwi Brain Blend. Jack and his team have scientifically engineered some game-changing beverages, and I'm working several of them into my daily routine. And
1: I'm making them part of my lifestyle, too. True drinks for true crime fans. Go to drinktrue.com and use the code SAINTS to get 30% off your purchase. Now, back to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers.
2: While Whitey and Catherine were making their trek west, back in Boston, bodies were being unearthed. Bulger's longtime right-hand man and muscle, Kevin Weeks, angry at finding out that Whitey was a lifelong informant for the FBI, flipped on his former friend and mentor. He directed investigators to two death pits in Dorchester, one across the street from a firefighter's union hall where three bodies were buried. The other was the site where Polly McGonagall was buried, along with two other victims. standing here in Dorchester, Massachusetts, across from Florian Hall, a firefighter's union hall, where 20 years ago, in January of 2000, I stood in the same spot when well, police officers and state police and federal agents dug up the bodies of three of Whitey Bulger's victims. They were found right here. It was a cold, snowy night in January of 2000, and uh, they unearthed the bodies of Arthur Bucky Barrett. John McIntyre and Deborah Hussey. They buried the bodies here, which back then, 20 years ago, it was a uh, dirt gully along, this, along the side of Interstate 93 that runs uh, in and out of Boston. And this was one of two burial sites where Bulger and his crew uh, left some of their victims. And here at Tenian Beach in Dorchester, It's the Neponset River, which feeds into the Atlantic Ocean, not far from the iconic rainbow-painted gas tank that um, marks the beginning of Dorchester and and really introduces travelers to Boston as they enter the city on Interstate 93. It's right here where in 2000, September, three more victims of Whitey Bulger and his gang were found. And I was here uh, when they dug those bodies up as a young reporter for the Boston Herald. They found here the bodies of Tommy King, Polly McGonagall, and Deborah Davis. Uh, The bodies were found here in in the marsh, uh, buried in mud and in shallow graves, uh, badly decomposed and were identified through dental records and bone fragments and uh, some identifying jewelry such as clatter rings and clothing. Today it's a very different area. There's a a beautiful park that's been built here Um, but Whitey Bulger actually lived in one of these buildings here and his apartment actually overlooked the burial spot where, where the bodies were buried.
1: After leaving the motel near the OJ Simpson Media Circus, Whitey and Catherine stayed in Venice Beach, which was now plagued by an exploding homeless population with desperate, forgotten people huddled in tent cities. This was the perfect place for Whitey to operate. Although he went on the run with millions of dollars, the currency he lived by day to day were fake IDs. He paid cash people down on their luck for their social security cards, which allowed him to move more freely. They took a trip to San Diego, where Catherine would cross the border to Mexico to buy inexpensive heart meds for Whitey. Although Bulger enjoyed his freedom, he still longed for the menace and notoriety of home. In October 2006, Whitey slipped into a San Diego movie theater to watch the first screening of The Departed the Oscar-winning film directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Jack Nicholson as the fictional version of Bulger himself.
3: The only one who can do
1: what I do is me. But what Whitey didn't know was sitting four rows behind him was an off-duty sheriff's deputy from Massachusetts named Rich Eaton. Rich had a special talent for spotting fugitives, and he had Bulger made. During an extensive interview for our book, Eaton said, I could see Whitey reacting viscerally. He was laughing at certain times, shaking his head in disagreement at other times. After the movie, Eaton slipped out of the theater ahead of Bulger. Whitey was wearing cargo shorts, New Balance sneakers, and a polo shirt with an identifiable bulge. He's packing, Eaton thought to himself. The sheriff's deputy was not. He watched Whitey get onto a trolley and head south. Eaton then raced back to get a service weapon and gave chase. But at a train stop minutes later, there was no sign of Whitey. Like the elusive Kaiser Soze from The
2: Usual Suspects, poof, he was gone. Enter Noreen Gleason. She joined the Boston FBI office in 2008 as the assistant special agent in charge of the criminal division and oversaw the Bulger task force. Her mission, like many who came before her, was to find Whitey, but more than a decade had passed, and nobody, nobody believed the feds truly wanted to bring Whitey in. Conventional wisdom was that the Bureau was more than content if he just disappeared forever. For Gleason, it was like chasing Bigfoot. Whitey was a ghost now, an apparition, a myth. Gleason's first move was to bring in two renowned fugitive hunters, agents Tommy McDonald and Phil Torsney, from the outside to rattle some cages in Southie. They knocked on doors of Whitey's old neighbors and even his family, most notably his brother Billy, once one of the most powerful politicians in Massachusetts. Unfortunately for the feds, Billy never talked to them about his brother's whereabouts, but Billy did break his silence about his brother to us while writing this book.
3: You talk about abusive uh, police officers, and if I would question that, sometimes I'd be talking to the police. Yeah. That's an exaggeration. Oh, that's only those guys down there. And also as a lawyer in the South Boston court, and I was dealing with these uh, police officers. I I think of him often. At different times of his life, he he became wayward. Be off in some direction that you wish would uh, uh, not continue. But I did always feel a certain closeness. He's my brother, and I never wanted to uh, ever seemed to be seeking to either deny him or separate myself. I didn't. I don't think I did that. I think he respected my right to uh, go my own way.
1: It was around this time that Agent Noreen Gleason turned the case on its head. She gathered her agents and assessed the situation. Whitey's mug had been plastered on the Fox show America's Most Wanted more than a dozen times and while thousands of leads were generated, they were all dead ends. Leeson told her agents, "'We've been looking for the wrong person. "'Instead of looking for him, we need to find her, "'his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. "'She'll lead us to Whitey.'" Fugitive hunters Tommy Mack and Phil Torsney discovered that Catherine had had plastic surgery and that there were before and after photos. The FBI then created its own television commercial describing Greg as a damsel in distress. The commercial generated thousands of leads, including one from Iceland. A woman there saw the couple and immediately called the FBI. Unlike all the other tips, she had names, Charlie and Carol Gasco. And she had an address, the 303 Princess Eugenia Apartments in Santa Monica. The tip was hot and had to be handled expertly. There was only one agent in Los Angeles capable enough to bring Whitey in from the cold. It was renowned FBI fugitive hunter, Scott Gariola.
2: I wound up getting in touch with a tipster, talked to them on the phone, and they told me they had actually talked to somebody at the Los Angeles office, but they weren't kinda happy with the reception they got, so they called headquarters, and then they called Boston, which I thought was a pretty good sign. They told me they were 200% sure it was them. They told me that the accent, he claimed he was from Chicago, and this person, the tipster knew accents, having traveled all around the United States, and they knew it was not a Chicago accent, but it was a Boston accent. They told me they had gotten into a lot of arguments with him, him being a racist and being anti-Obama, and that uh, the female was very pleasant, Catherine was very pleasant. They bonded over this stray cat
3: that they were feeding. Right. And that she was like, uh, not, she did not, I'm not 100% sure. I'm 200% sure.
2: Agent Gariola devised a plan to lure Whitey out of apartment 303 to the basement of the building. Gariola broke the lock on Whitey's storage locker to make it look like a break in. The apartment manager called Whitey and asked him if they should call the cops to report it. Whitey wanted nothing to do with the police and said he'd come down to inspect the locker himself. Gariola's plan was working. In a letter we obtained while writing Hunting Whitey, we hear for the first time Whitey himself describing what came next, his own arrest.
4: When I entered the elevator, I kind of hesitated. I stood there for a minute after the doors closed and stared at the button. Looking intently at the worn buttons on the panel. I gathered my thoughts, but was thinking I didn't want the cops' call to have this turn into anything big. When I got off the elevator and started to walk around a parked car, I could see my locker. I noticed that the door was hanging off. I knew something wasn't right, he continued. What first caught my eye was that I saw a few pieces of colored tape on the cement as if to uh, mark positions like on a stage. There was a stillness that uh, just seemed off. Hard to describe in words, but my instinct told me something was off. As I started walking toward my locker, a light was shined on me. Quite a few men in full combat gear and armed with M4 carbines, fully automatic machine guns, and a couple point Glock handguns, took aim at me. I remember almost every word that was said in the garage that day. Some were omitted by the FBI <laughs> on purpose. The agent in charge yelled, "Who are you?" He quoted me as responding back. Who the fuck are you? What I actually said was, Who the fuck are you? Homeland Security? I felt I was the calmest person in the garage at that moment. Things were so tense, I expected they may kill me. They were screaming, We will shoot. And I responded, Go ahead. I'm not kneeling down in the oil. I told him there was a clean place to my right, and for him to take two steps to the right, to that area, and then I'd comply. He was screaming, Don't try it or I'll shoot. I thought, huh, I'm gonna die, and I knew it might be my last step, but I told them, here's step number one, and I took it. (laughs) I debated with myself, do I dare chance another step? The tension was rising, but I said, fuck it, I'm not backing down, and I said, here's step number two. They screamed, don't or we'll shoot. (laughs) I had that feeling I had as a kid, waiting to feel that bullet in the back.
1: Agent Gariola took out a pair of handcuffs and placed them on Whitey's wrists. He then texted the Boston office. One in custody and one to go. Bulger captured. Stand by for Catherine. Gariola and a female FBI agent went upstairs and knocked on apartment 303. Catherine opened the door. I knew it, she shouted. I knew the FBI was here. Gariola placed her under arrest and sent a final text back to his fellow FBI agents in Boston. Catherine in custody without incident, seen secure. After more than 16 years on the run, Whitey Bulger and his girlfriend were finally under arrest and headed back to Boston.
0: Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. This episode is brought to you with thanks to our sponsor, Work Local in Marshfield, Massachusetts. Special thanks to Charles Danison for providing the voice of Whitey Bulger. Music in this episode was provided by Chris Spagone. You can reach Chris on Instagram at chrissalaneousart. For more on the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit mudhousemedia.com. That's Mudhouse with two Ds. And for the latest updates on their podcast and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, please visit fortpointmedia.com.